Welcome to this Dealer's Edge webinar featuring Don Tipton with a workshop on how to create a Disney-like customer experience in your dealership service department. Don Tipton is president of DTC Retail Consulting, a fixed operations advisory firm working with retail car dealers across the United States and Canada. I'm Mike Bowers, executive editor of Dealer's Edge. One of the constants in automotive retailing, certainly for the 30 years or so that I've been involved and longer, is that once the new vehicle warranty expires, a shockingly large percentage of new car owners abandon the dealership service department and seek out other places to have their cars worked on. Why is that? Well, one excuse is the, is the perception that dealership service is overpriced. Another is that dealership locations may not be convenient. But you know, no one would ever accuse the Disney theme parks or the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain of trying to compete on price. Ruth's Chris Steakhouses will never hold themselves out as the Jiffy Lube of restaurants. Yet their customers keep returning with their wallets wide open. Those companies expend a lot of effort to find out what their customers think of them and why. Ritz-Carlton, for instance, found that the customer's first impression was critical. Customers who rated the appearance of the hotel, the check-in process, and the first impression upon walking into the hotel room highly almost always rated the rest of the experience highly too. Conversely, customers who said they had a negative first impression also rated the rest of the stay poorly as well. So Ritz-Carlton works very hard to make great first impressions. Other retailers have already mastered the Disney-like approach to the customer experience. Department stores like Nordstrom have achieved nirvana with a body of loyal customers that seemingly can't wait to visit and spend money, a lot of money. Don Tipton spends most of his working hours in dealership service departments, and he joins us today to explore just what you need to do to improve customer retention and create a service department where customers can't wait to visit and spend money. Hey, Don. Yes, Mike. That's Mike. Uh, on that uh, that list that you had, that, that essentially that looks like uh, that, that's market research, uh, asking customers what they want. Uh, how do you feel about dealerships outsourcing that that project uh, and turning it over to uh, uh, basically to a research firm or customer follow-up firm to to make those calls? Well, I guess there's pros and cons to that, um, Mike. I have some stores, and I think this is the question you're asking. I have some stores that service advisors actually follow up on their own customers. Um, so, I, you know, the plus of that is it's real personal. I mean, I, I, I like that part a lot. It's real personal with the customers, and you build that relationship. The downside of it may be that the customer may not be forthcoming with anything negative uh, because they're avoiding a confrontation. Um, the advantage of an off-site, number one, it gets done. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's done on a consistent basis, right. and uh, they they have no personal interest in it. They're strictly objective. But I would I would do this. It, you know, don't don't hire an uh, an off-site firm to do your follow-up that you don't follow up on them. In mm -hmm. other words, don't just trust them that they're being courteous that they're using the right uh, uh, word uh, word tracks, uh, you know, asking the right questions, mystery shop them or have them contact you or a neighbor or a relative or somebody 
and and let's grade them and make sure we keep them in check because they're representing your company your company to the customer. We need to know what they're doing. So I like the offsite as long as we police them. Uh, yeah, and that's uh, the reason I brought it up is that I did work with a dealership group that that used an offsite firm. Uh, number one, because they weren't they weren't sure that their service advisors were going to call 100% of the customers all the time, uh, but also because they, it gave them a, another level of uh, of control. They could uh, when they started to get this answer, when every customer said, you know, you know that the service was too expensive, it cost too much. Uh, and that used to be written down as a, as a price objection or a price complaint. Uh, we had the we had the research company dig a little deeper and say, well, what do you mean by that? Why do you think it was too expensive? And then they started to get a more expanded answer, which was, uh, well, it, it cost me five hundred dollars, and nobody nobody ever explained what I got for my five hundred dollars. Uh, right. So it, it, right. it felt like. It cost a lot, but I'm not sure what value I got in return because all they they just got sent to a cashier and paid the bill and left, and it didn't. It, the experience didn't feel right. Uh, it was uh, it was just functional. Yes, yeah, so it was just the it function. Uh, whereas if if somebody had explained up front, you know, here's what you're getting, and this is in a breakdown of the cost, it would have been more palatable uh, right. to the customer. And these were the types of customers. It was a Mercedes dealership, so they were used to spending more money, but they didn't like spending it uh, unless they were sure they were going to get some value in return. Okay, that's sure. a question from the audience. When you talk about using the either-or method uh, for setting appointments, um, would you limit them to two options, uh, give the customer two options for appointments, or uh, or should there be more or less? Well, not you can't have less than I, two. But. Well, no, I would limit it to two uh, because it keeps it simple. And okay. if you have to go and backtrack, um, instead of a Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe you make it a Tuesday, Friday, or whatever. But okay. but I would limit it to two because it makes it an either-or choice, um, and you and you you get to where you want to go much quicker than too many options. Okay, thank you. Uh, one actually is relates to slide 21. Uh, the last bullet point. Um, you say don't recommend, don't sell anything to anybody. Instead, recommend all credible service to every customer. Um, the question is, what do you mean by all credible service? If the vehicle um, requires a maintenance service that is credible, and by credible I mean the manufacturer recommends it at this mileage or this interval, mm -hmm. um, the, um, the dealership has experience due to local driving conditions uh, or due to the, the customer's individual driving habits, that this would be a good preventative maintenance for this customer, um, that the brakes actually are worn down enough to recommend a replacement, or the tires actually are worn to recommend a replacement, or credible service means it's actually broken, it's leaking, or it's worn out. Um, and, and it could be preventative maintenance as well, as long as it's legitimate. Just to load up a repair order for the sake of making a sale by selling unneeded services is short-term gain, in my opinion, with a long-term loss of customers. Okay. A question from Ryan. Um, okay. Again, has to do with where price comes into the presentation. Should you end the presentation to the customer with the price, or should you give some other information 
after you give the customer the price. Uh, I've heard both schools of thought on this. Uh, what do you think? Well, my school of thought on that is you build up to the price, you make the price, and you stop talking. And you allow the customer uh, time to respond. And the response may be, hey, I need more information because you didn't give me enough to make a buying decision. Um, so give me some more information. Or the response may be, I can't afford that right now, or is there another alternative? We've got to, we got to, at some point, the last thing to give is a price, and I say we stop talking at that point and give the customer an opportunity to process it and, and then respond back to us, Mike. Okay. And Tanya had a question. Uh, it really relates to slide 20, uh, This uh, the, the concept of determine what to fix, the machine or the mind. Uh, could you, I guess, could you elaborate on that a little bit more? And then uh, the, the second part of the question is: It were you, if, if you're going to fix the machine, are you are you suggesting that the service advisors do a diagnosis, uh, or shouldn't that be left to the technicians later? Oh, absolutely, left to the technicians. Do not diagnose. Do not pre-diagnose in the service lane. Uh, what I'm referring to with the machine or the mind is there are some cases that the machine's not broken. Uh, it is operating normally. It's operating within specs. And though we may have to go through a checkout process as part of what it takes to satisfy the customer, we need to know what we're up against right up front uh, because there, it, may not be the, it may not be a situation of a non-functioning or non-properly functioning automobile. It just may be the expectation of the customer uh, is different than the automobile is going to provide, and, and in some cases, you know, that requires a road test with a, by a service advisor, uh, a service manager, or a technician, to particularly a technician maybe to verify that it is a normal operating condition and to put the customer's mind at ease. In some cases, it's you put them in a you put them in a similar vehicle or a like vehicle, pull it off the lot, and it and, they, and it has the same condition as their vehicle. So at some point, you have to prove. You have, to, you have to work on where the concern might be, and the concern might not be with the machine. The concern might be with satisfying the customer that what they have is a normal operating condition. That's what I mean by that, Mike. All right. Okay. Uh, thank you. Tanya, I hope we answered your question. If not, uh, perhaps you could uh, re-ask it or tell us what else you need to know. There, there was a question that came in, and it fits in right here. Okay, great. Um, what, uh, what standard do you use uh, to determine how many service advisors uh, there should be in a service department? Uh, and Bob's question actually refers to the number of advisors based on the repair order count uh, as opposed to the number of technicians, which I think is the more common measure. So how do you know how many uh, service advisors to have? Well, there's a couple, you know, there's a couple of different ways of looking at that, Mike. And I used to look at all of them, and some vary depending on on franchises. Uh, some of the high-line franchises, it's not unusual to have a, uh, a generally a five or six-line repair order, uh, as opposed to some of the domestic franchises that might only have uh, generally one or two lines on the repair order. So, you know, it takes more time on the bigger repair orders than it does on the smaller. It also depends on your structure: who dispatches, uh, who books. Uh, uh, who cashiers, you know. So, I mean, all these factors come into play. Generally speaking, you look at a ratio of four technicians to one service advisor, okay. no more than four. 
I do have some stores that are high-performing stores operating on a three-to-one ratio, which I really like. But you really got to be cranking uh, because uh, with three-to-one, three-to-one ratio, you've got to be able to um, have a high enough value per repair order because you're you're cutting the pie into smaller slices. So generally, I use a four-to-one ratio to start. I uh, also use a budget of 15% of department gross uh, for all service advisor income as a, as a benchmark to see if we can stay within budget. And depending on um, whether they cash here in the lane or don't cash here in the lane, 13 to 15 ROs a day um, you know, is, is, a, is a decent range. If you're uh, cashiering in the lane, put around 13. If you're not cashiering in the lane, you might get a little over 15, 15, 16 ROs a day depending on your franchise. So, um, you know, we have to make sure we create the environment that these people can operate in and provide the service. If they're handling 20 and 25 customers a day, uh, there are probably a few exceptions to this, but in most cases, they're going to drop some balls and not pull off the service that we're trying to, that we're trying to achieve here, Mike. Okay, and uh, another follow-up question came in on that. 13 to 15 ROs a day, is that just customer pay or would that include warranty? That would be everything. Okay. All right. Uh, and and for those of you again, the, the, this question always comes up as uh, as a percentage of the gross. What should we be paying service advisors? And it's fifteen percent of the labor gross. Fifteen percent of of department gross. Yes, of total department gross. Okay. Now that if, for the stores that have parts transfer, Mike, I don't include that. This is strictly the service department gross. Okay. All right. Uh, okay, and uh, so if you if you if you took that fifteen percent of the labor gross and divided it by the number of service advisors you have, that would give you the average uh, compensation. Average pay per advisor. Okay, all right. Yeah, okay. so what you may have is you know some senior guys or gals that are making above that, and you'd have some maybe entry level people that are that are below that, but overall you'd stay within your budget. Okay, great. Let's see here. Okay, you you, you said we should have. Um, Compensation plans should uh, the incentives should be weighted toward the individual, but there also has to be a team incentive included. Uh, Peter's question is, um, what about giving a bonus, the team bonus, that's based on the lowest producing advisor, or I guess the improvement of the lowest improving advisor? Uh, do you think that would make the group as a whole work? work better together to help raise up the lowest producer? You know, the, the situations um, in the service lane with the quality of the staff or the performance of the staff is different in every store. Um, I, I think what you have to be a little careful of is building specific pay plans around the individuals that you currently have on staff because the real, the real world effect here is we have turnover. Um, so if you have a pay plan that's in place because of a specific individual or individuals, as time marches on, um, those pay plans may not be effective because you've had turnover and those, those individuals may not be employed there anymore. So don't, um, you can't manage with the pay plan, you know. You manage things, you coach people, and, and you can't manage uh, or coach through a pay plan. A pay plan is built to incentivize uh, and motivate and um, you know, and and uh, certainly not demotivate, 
but it's not the only component of poor performance. The pipeline is not the only reason that you have an underperformer um, or the only reason that you have, you know, above average performer. I mean, a lot of times they will work their pay plan, and that's what you want them to do. You want them to work their pay plan if you built it properly. But it's not always the fix, Mike, for all situations of, of an employee performance. Okay. Uh, MBWA means management by walking around. Yes, sir. Okay. And a uh, question from Ryan. Uh, ask, Ryan sees a uh, like a fine line between uh, the concept of effective coaching and the danger of micromanaging. Uh, do you see that uh, fine line as well? And if so, uh, how do you avoid getting, becoming a micromanager? Well, well, actually you get in trouble with micro. Well, I typically see people get in trouble with being a micromanager is because they're managing numbers with an individual. They're managing performance indicators with the individual. Uh, I think you can get I think you can get a little too too much with that, um, but I think there are things that you have to. If you want to call it micromanaging, okay, so be it. Um, when it comes to process, in other words, how you do business at your store, uh, how your customers are handled from the beginning to the end of the of the transaction, um, managing or coaching the the employees in the implementation and the consistency of using your processes uh, is not micromanaging. That's a condition of employment. Um, and it's that simple. You know, they don't have the right, as a bank teller doesn't have the right, or uh, an airline a ticket agent at the counter in an airport or whoever it may be, they don't have the right to change the operating processes of the company, nor should your service advisors. So I don't think that's micromanaging at all. I think where we can get in trouble with micromanaging is, is Managing performance indicators may be a little too hard, but but not with process, Mike. All right, and Don, how uh, we're almost up against our time here. What? Uh, how can people get in touch with you, Don, if they wanted to do, do some follow-up? Uh, okay, there it is. Uh, Don's phone number and email address, and there were several questions on pay plans, uh, if people wanted to send you a pay plan or two and get your, uh, it just, just sort of get your quick impressions or recommendations, would that be okay? Mike, that'll be fine. My email address is there, Don at DTC Retail Consulting. Okay. Uh, please, by all means, I encourage it. And uh, just be a little patient on the response. That's all I have. Okay. <laughs> but I will get back. I will be right. that's, that's right. Don, Don travels quite a bit uh, visiting his clients, uh, but he will eventually get back to you. And it's usually pretty quick. Um, so if you have uh, questions on pay plans and you, and you have a, a one or two that you'd like Don to review for you, uh, feel free to send them to him, contact him directly. Uh, that looks like the end of our questions here, Don, and uh, we're right up against our, uh, our time anyhow. So that brings us to okay. the end of, of today's workshop. Uh, I'd like to remind everybody that we did record today's workshop, and the contact person from your registered site We'll receive information tomorrow morning about how to access that recording. Uh, feel free to share the information with other people in your dealership or dealership group. I'd like to thank all of you uh, for joining us this afternoon. We had uh, actually our largest audience ever for a Dealer's Edge webinar, uh, and uh, we appreciate you all being part of that. We know it's not easy to take 90 minutes out of your day in a dealership, uh, and we thank you for spending that time with us. Uh, 
I'd also like to especially thank Don Tipton of DTC Retail Consulting uh, for sharing his expertise with us. Uh, Don, as I say, spends uh, pretty much all of his working hours in dealerships working with service department people, uh, and he's been doing that for, uh, for, for quite a long time. Uh, and uh, so he knows what he's talking about. Uh, if you have other questions, you can uh, just feel free to shoot him an email, and he'll, he'll get back to you quickly. Um, Don, thank you, and thank you also for putting the presentation together. I know that, uh, I know that takes a little bit of time as well. Uh, and with that, I want to, I'm Mike Bowers with Dealer's Edge. Uh, we'll be signing off for today.